Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest this week is one of the most legendary DJs in the history of radio. Bruce Morrow, better known as Cousin Brucey, is an American icon who, as an award-winning radio announcer, began his career more than 65 years ago when he created the first college radio station at New York's NYU. In 1961, Brucey joined powerhouse station WABC in New York and for the next 13 years brought the rock and roll era into households in New York and beyond through the 50,000 clear channel AM watts of WABC. Brucey was instrumental in breaking the Beatles nationally and actually introduced them at their legendary Shea Stadium concert in 1965. Later, he spent a decade and a half ushering in the new technology that was America's first satellite radio station at Sirius XM. He's made multiple television and film appearances and has been involved in children's charities and charities for the visually disabled. Cousin Brucey has also written three books, including Cousin Brucey, My Life in Rock and Roll Radio, Doo-Wop, The Music, The Times, The Era, and Rock and Roll, and The Beat Goes On. Currently, Brucey finds himself right back at WABC Radio New York hosting Cousin Brucey's Saturday Night Rock and Roll Party every week from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's very special episode of Rock and Roll High School. I'm Pete Ganborg. I'm the head of A&R for Atlantic Records here in New York, and I am thrilled, absolutely thrilled, to welcome our guest today, someone whose voice I've been hearing literally my whole life, Cousin Brucey, Bruce Morrow. Welcome, Brucey. Thank you very much, Cousin Peter. I know that you've been listening since you were a little kid. I remember seeing pictures of you when you were three and four. <laughs> Uh, look at you now, eight. <laughs> you were one of my early babysitters, Brucey, without even you know Thank having you. met me. But Thank you. I was just saying to you before we went on, we do this class, this series of interviews to help educate not only our Warner music team, but the greater podcast world about the history of contemporary music. And we've done so many amazing interviews with people who have created the music, the artists, the songwriters, the producers, but we haven't really ever touched on what happens once that music is made. How does it get heard by the public? You know, we talk about the history of contemporary music. Contemporary music for me is another name for the rock era, which started in 1955, which means that you've been there pretty much the whole time. And people like you have helped get the music from all of our artists, past, present, and future, out to the world. And before we start, I'd like to start with a quote from the National Observer, who says, quote, to call Bruce Morrow a disc jockey 
is like calling Leonard Bernstein a piano player. <laughs> Isn't that marvelous? You know, I first of all, I've never liked the word disc jockey. You know, I'm going to tell you right from the beginning of this thing. Disc jockey is somebody who rides a horse holding an album. I don't know what the, <laughs> what the heck that is. <laughs> a real jockey. You know, it's because what I do on the air, and I can't speak for everybody. I'll speak for a lot of people in my part of the business. We do more than just spin or jockey a record. We make the connection with the people. We are the bridge. And that requires more than just dropping an old stylus on a record years ago. I don't know if you know what records are. You're too young. But that's before your time, probably. But we used to put, you know, a, a record on a big turntable, these huge ones sometimes, 16-inch ones are the old RCA things, and spin a record, you know, cue it up, and then play a record. Of course, we haven't done that many, many times. I still get excited when I look at a record. I say, whoa, I remember playing those things. But we are more than just somebody who played music. We are the connection. We talk to people about their lives, their lifestyles. Now, you can make the most beautiful poetry, and you have. You've been very, very fortunate in what you do, too. And you can send it to Cousin Brucey and people like myself. But without me making that connection, that sociological connection with my audience, your audience, your market, we don't have anything. We just have somebody sending out and playing a record. So there's a big connection. There's more than just playing a record. There's that media connection, that personal connection between me and my audience, your audience. That's important. And you've been doing it so well for so long that I must start by letting our audience know some of the accolades you've received. You've been inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame, the National Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame in the radio division, the Bravery in Radio Award from the William Patterson University and its radio station WPSC for a track record of inspirational radio programming and lifelong commitment to the medium of radio, inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame in 2018. You've co-authored three books, one of which I've been reading all weekend. And at the very end of this book... I can actually be a member of the Cousin Brucie fan club. So I'm not <laughs> sure if the P.O. box still works, but we'll give it a I try. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We got a few, a few new P.O. boxes. <laughs> so let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in Brooklyn, and a lot of people would be surprised to hear that you were a very, very shy child. I tell that to people, you know, when I deliver lectures or I'm on uh, podcasts or radio shows or TV shows. And I say, you know, I'm going to tell you something secret. I don't want you to tell anyone. But I was a kid that so shy, I didn't even want to stand up in class. And I used to make a deal with my teacher if I could. I was always kind of good at making deals. I'll get my B's and my B minuses and C pluses. But please don't make me stand up in front of an audience. Until one day, Cousin Peter... I may call you that because you're my, one of my kids. You're one of my kids, Peter. A teacher came over to me at PS 206 in Brooklyn, New York, and good old PS is right, public school 206, and said, "I want you to uh, try out for a part in our hygiene play." Now, I don't know if you know about <laughs> that, but years ago, see, you're laughing, but it was very serious because we couldn't say sex education in those days. So, sex education in those days, it was called hygiene. We took a hygiene class. Wonderful stuff. They really prepared us for the world. Uh, they taught us how to brush our teeth, wash behind our ears, under our arms, and wash our faces. That was hygiene, right? 
really, that's why my generation is so screwed up. <laughs> not, we weren't ready for the world. What the hell is hygiene, you know? All right, anyway, I tried out for the hygiene play. You know, every year in the General Assembly, they have one major show. And this was a hygiene show. And people would come, all the kids would come, three or 400 of them, the teachers and some parents dressed up in their white shirts and blue ties. And the gals would match in their dresses. And we'd do a show. So I auditioned at the behest of my teacher to play a cavity, right? <laughs> I was a cavity. A lot of people think I still am <laughs> in, this, in this world. And I was dressed up in this huge, in this huge cavity. I felt kind of safe. I was secure because as we said a few moments ago, I was very shy, but I was in this cavity and I had a little peephole, right? And I looked out and I saw the audience through the cavity and I sang a song like, you probably have it on one of your albums. My mommy <laughs> told me, brush my teeth, never eat chocolate. I love Bosco. I can't eat the chocolate or something like that. Some kind of a, <laughs> a song. And the people, as I was doing my lines as a cavity, this huge cavity protected, they were laughing. But they weren't laughing at me, which was nice. They were laughing with me. There was a warmth. So immediately that day, through my little people, I felt the warmth of an audience. Ah, I gave up my doctor career, my medical career, and I knew what I was going to do. I was going to devote my life to radio and the stage. I like the exchange of the audience. And I st that's, my, that's why I still do it. I love my exchange. So you love the feeling that you got from the audience as being cast as the cavity, at what point did you, as a kid, growing up in Brooklyn, recognize the medium of radio and recognize the power of radio? I read a, a chapter in your book about one day you came home from Punchball and you saw all the moms around Mrs. Goldberg and Mrs. Flink's radio listening to a notification about something really sad. Well, first of all, we have to now, because we're reaching the world, we got to discuss what is punch ball. Now, <laughs> you grew up in Brooklyn. What you're doing is you're opening, Peter, you're doing something. I don't think you mean to, but you're opening up a ball of wax, a bad no pun. A punch so ball anyway, of wax. A punch ball for people who didn't grow up in Brooklyn, the Bronx. We used to use a little pink ball, a little tiny ball like this, called us, the company was Spalding. Spalding. We called it Spalding. If you came from Brooklyn, you called it a Spalding. If somebody called it a Spalding, you know that they're from the Bronx and you go beat them up, right? <laughs> you have to say Dean. So we used to use this little ping ball and we used to use mom's broomstick yep. as a bat, yep. right? You'd stand by a sewer. Now in Brooklyn, we had sewers, every sewer covers, every 50 feet apart. Yep. Peter, I am very proud to say this. I had this on my wall. It goes right next to my diploma, honorary doctorate degree, that I was a two and a half sewer man and punch ball. Well done. Brooklyn. Well now, done. That means each two is 50 feet apart. Figure the math. I was able to hit a ball, punch ball or stick ball, right? 150 feet. And that's not bad. So that's what punch ball was. <laughs> and then we'd run the bases. All right. Now that we got that done, what'd you ask me? April 12th, <laughs> 1945. You're coming home from punch ball. And Mrs. Bloom has placed her RCA radio in the front window. I was coming home with my Spalding because I owned a catch of Spaldines, but my dad bought them for me. And I was coming home from PS206. And I got on my block and I'm going to my house and I, I don't see my mother there because I'm ready for my milk and my cookies, my chocolate chip cookies, which was a treat to staying in school for the full day. 
<laughs> and uh, I noticed my mom across the street from our house on the porch upstairs. It was a two-level thing. On the porch upstairs of these brick buildings, I see them crying. I see my mother crying. I see Mrs. Bloom crying, Mrs. McGinnis crying, right? And Mrs. Flink crying. And I'm saying, what's going on? What's happened? Something happened to my father. There was an accident. I got very scared. I got closer and I heard something come from a, a little box of Bakelite, I guess, the precursor of plastic. I heard this voice coming out and my mother would be bawling. I said, what the heck's going on? He's strong. My mother's strong. Brooklyn, Brooklyn woman. And out of the radio came this, ladies and gentlemen, we regret to inform you this is 1945. So right away, you know what I'm going to say. We regret to inform you that the president of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, died this morning, etc. Well, they would be crying and crying. That moment, I walked up to the stairs and my mother was inconsolable. And the, and the other women, you couldn't, and they were just listening to this announcer on the radio. And I realized that that voice from that little magic box that was about so big, right, with a dial in the middle, if that can evoke this kind of emotion, and I was that young, that I, but I was aware of it, made my mother cry, right? So my father, it wasn't anything with my relatives or parents or friends, wasn't kind of a well, fight. It was an emotion. I realized that there's something in that box. I don't know what it was. A little man was in that box talking right, to the radio. I didn't know what it was. I had to check into that. Well, I did. And then after that, for the next couple of years, I used to sit behind our Crosley or Philco console in our living room with a fork. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, hi there. This is Brucey Meyerowitz. And I play, it's a family name. I play radio. And I would talk. I'd read things from the newspaper. I'd read my mother's recipes. And I played radio. I was hooked. I gave up my other careers. And I became <laughs> a radio guy. And I, I loved it. I love television. I love doing films. You know, I, I love my appearances. But radio is my magic. Radio is my poetry. Radio is my heart. So as a kid, you attended something called the All City Radio Workshop. And while you were in high school, you spent three and a half years getting out of the kitchen with the fork as a microphone and actually had a real microphone while you were in high school, prepping, learning, and becoming a DJ. Ready here. And I was a part of the New York City Board of Education program. Instead of regular classroom textbook English, you'd take an audition, you pass the audition, you'd say this, this would be like radio English. And it was at WNYE. The studios were housed at Brooklyn Technical High School in Brooklyn, New York. And it was beautiful equipment. It was up to date at that time. Although be it today, it's like archaic. It was on the air equipment. I used to go there twice a week and I'd take my English courses, but I'd be on the radio. I played people like Paul Bunyan. I played a drama. I did news. I did coverage. I did talking. I really got my education in that particular room. Yeah, that was a great experience. At what point were you aware, did you become aware of other DJs who were pros? Like, talk about Alan Freed and how you used to go to the WINS. Alan Freed, excuse me, that was my mentor. As soon as you said his name, I got excited. I guess you can say I was probably in the first generation, real pure generation, not hybrid, but pure generation of rock and roll babies. We were very fortunate to have some guys on the air that, well, some of them were hybrid. We used to have guys like a Martin Block and 
you know, stations like WNEW would play. Sometimes they'd throw in some rock and roll music and make uh, a derogatory statement about it because, you know, they wanted to reach the parents. And at that time, rock and roll was a dirty word. It was a four-letter word, rock and roll, right? So they smelled it. Little by little, though, over the years, more rock and roll records started getting on the top 40. There was a guy that came out of Cleveland, came to New York, and at first he was called Moondog. And Moondog used to hang around outside the studio, became on WABC. Unfortunately, there was a guy named Moondog, whose name was Alan Harden, I believe. He used to walk around dressed as a Viking. He used to walk around, and he was a poet. Alan was a poet. He called himself Moondog. And he had his, his horns on his head, carried a big staff, and you pay him 50 cents for one of his poems. And he was there for many years. And I was really impressed with this guy. And I thought he was really a poet, very poor. And one day I came down from the station. From I was working at WABC then over on Avenue of the Americas, 53rd Street or something. And I saw him get into his chauffeured limousine. That destroyed my image. He was, he was more wealthy than we thought. He made a lot of money in his poems. Anyway, Moondog came to town, but and he couldn't use the name Moondog because of what I just told you. This man had it copyrighted. He was a businessman. Alan Freed was born here out of Cleveland into New York City and became really the preeminent granddaddy of top 40 rock and roll radio. I love what he sounded like. He was the very first guy that I ever heard that sounded like this new music. This music of rock and roll, he sounded like Chuck Berry, sounded like the Everly Brothers and Jerry Lee Lewis, right? The Drifters. He had that cacophony in his voice, that excitement, the energy. So I decided one day that I was going to go and see if I can go and meet him. I wanted my energy, my nerve, and my spirit. And they let me in, WINS, and I was told I could stand by the window for a half hour and watch this magic guy, this magician, work. I did that, and I came back a few times, and I came back again. Eventually, he started recognizing me. And one day, it happened, Peter. He looked at the window. I walked in, and I met Adam Free. And he said to me, and I'll quote, I'll never forget this as long as I live. Son, you want to do this, huh? I said, oh, yes, sir. And I'll do anything, Mr. Freed, anything. Just go into your father's business, kid. This is terrible. <laughs> it's boring. You don't want this. Thank God I didn't listen to him. I didn't make that mistake. My dad, by the way, very successful. He manufactured children's clothing. Great guy. And what the nice part, the best part, my parents always told me, do what your dream tells you. Follow it. They wanted me to be a doctor. You know, I come from Brooklyn. No, you got to be a, you're a doctor. You're brought up to be a doctor. I didn't want that. I wanted to be a doctor of music and doctor for health. <laughs> I think what I do is as medicinal sometimes as some of the medicines. Absolutely. You know, talking about Alan Freed, for anyone who doesn't know, Alan Freed plays such an important part in the history of rock and roll. He actually is credited with creating the term rock and roll, Alan Freed from Cleveland. And you, when you saw him and you put your nose up against the glass and watched him work at WINS, he was literally banging on telephone books. Yeah, and there was this, there was this primal feeling that you weren't getting from a Martin Block or a Peter Tripp. This was youth. This was raw. This was primal. He told me his favorite telephone book was the Bronx telephone book. It gave the best sound. Right? <laughs> had Manhattan, he had Brooklyn, 
at Queens, but he loved the Bronx telephone book. He played Jerry Lewis, right? Something with his beat, and he'd pound on a pound on a pound on a pound on in cacophony, in, in sync with the record. His voice also blended in. And as I said, he was really the very first personality on radio. Notice I don't use the word DJ, this jockey. Personality on radio that had that sound, that had that energy. And that's what helped sell. So you have the record, you have the poetry that you guys give us, but then you want to have somebody who's leading the band. Ah, the bridge, the band leader, right? The band leader. And that's what we do. You mentioned your parents earlier. Your parents actually incentivized you to go to college by giving you a new car. And you ended up spending six months at Brooklyn College, but you couldn't find any of the classes. Are you sure I went to Brooklyn College? No, I, I guess I so. did. I know I was on the campus. For some <laughs> reason, Peter, they used to move those classes every day to fool me. I, I couldn't find the classes. That's why I used to tell my parents. I knew this wasn't for me. I, I didn't want to, that kind of background, that kind of education. I, I had it in me, in my blood, in my genes, in my bones, my muscles, my sinew to pursue what I wanted. I wanted to be on the air. I wanted to be on the stage. I wanted to make that connection with people. I knew I had that in me. I had that, I don't know, it's, it's genetic, if it's God-given or it's a miracle, but I know I can get through things like microphones and cameras and things like, and I have the ability, just like you have your abilities, what you do, I have the ability to transcend those technical, physical things, and I can get into somebody and reach them, and they feel I'm with them, and that's what it is. I know darn well I take baths with people, showers with people. I'm in bed with people. I'm there when they change their underwear. I'm there when they change their clothes. Good thing it's audio only. Then, right? <laughs> I'm sure I've done it with you when you were growing up. I have that ability, and it's something I never take for granted. To this day, I love it, and I appreciate it, and I never, ever right, abuse it. That's very important. I respect, I respect what this is. You know? So you ended up not lasting at Brooklyn College, but you transferred to NYU in 1953, and you realized that NYU did not have a radio station. Right. You were going to do something about well, it. I can't imagine, even in those days in the 50s, a college, a university, the word uni, everything, right? All-encompassing. Without a radio station, which to me is one of the basic Basic necessities, necessities, and that word underlined, score, bold, of daily living, whether it be for information, entertainment, or news, or, or assistance, a personal assistant in those days. And people really depended and depend upon radio for all those necessities. So I decided to go up to the dean's office. <laughs> it was a very tough thing for me to do. It was a snowy, muddy, slushy day in Washington Square Park, and I trudged my way through this park, through the sludge and the mess and the, and the mire and the snow. And I walked into the dean's office with my galoshes, which are huge rubber-type things that you put over boots, what we used to wear in those days before everyone just wore sneakers to get absolutely wet anyhow. And I walked onto his brand-new carpet, and he looked at me, and I didn't know what was going on. His eyes bulged. I was in a brand-new carpet. And he said, yes, what can I do for you? He was very curt. He said, well, my name is Bruce. And uh, I was told I could talk to you about getting some, some funding to build a radio station. What do you want a radio station? What's a radio station? Didn't care, right? He was a newspaper guy. 
you know, read the newspaper. I said, no, 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 radio. I want to build a radio station. Well, I'm moving around on his carpet, making it muddy. And he said, what do you need? I said, well, I need some wire. I need a uh, phonograph, some microphones, and a place. He says, good, I'll give you some money. Get out. Where are we out? <laughs> he gave me $28. <laughs> that's, that's all it took. Oh, that's all right. 28 bucks. I was a very frugal kid. My parents told me how to take care of every penny, right? And I... For $28, I bought wire. I bought an old Dynavox. Here's one for you. Dynavox phonograph, just with a speaker and a little arm on it and a claw, I called it. But she used to rip and trench the records up. Borrowed a microphone, and he gave me a studio. I made friends with the head of their radio club department, Dr. Falk, Dr. Emerson, and we started a radio club. In the meantime, I took this $28 worth of wire and I threw it down from the eighth floor of the building where I had the studio down to a green room, a lounge, about four stories below. I had our engineer come with some solder. I soldered the wires to the back of a speaker. I was on the air. I made a deal with London Records, FFRR, Full Frequency Range Recording. Remember that? Brilliant stuff. And they gave me their library. They were impressed. It was NYU. I didn't tell them. I have $28 worth of wire for one room. <laughs> they gave me their catalog. They sent it over. I was on the air. Got the club together. We started covering events in the school, started recording clubs and news events. I even got sponsors in the local area. And then I went to a night. With that money, I made some money from sponsors. I bought some more wire. <laughs> I wired some more lounges. And before I knew, I had a wired network. And we were on the air. And we stayed on the air 10 hours a day, and we'd have DJs and people. Some people would play classical music. It was really a very uh, diverse kind of format. We'd play popular music of the day, and we'd have a good time, do news and interview teachers, interview professors. We had a real radio station with a log. So anyone who listens today to the radio station from NYU, which is WNYU, that wouldn't have been possible without you having started WCAG Communication Arts Group in 1953. Yeah, but today it's a little different. Today, Peter, they're on the air. They have a frequency. It's a licensed frequency. They're on the actual air. 89.1, sure. Yeah, and the internet. So you graduated from NYU. You say that you majored in radio station. I say the same thing, even though I didn't, but it felt like I did. Talk about, you mentioned before when you were sitting in your parents' room with the fork and the spoon and, and broadcasting Bruce Meyerowitz. Talk about how your friend Paula's mom and her phone book gave you a different last name. In those days, you know, not like today. I mean, it just shows you kind of laugh at things today. Years ago, you had to have an American sounding name to be on the air television, early television, radio, stage. They wanted names that did not have any kind of ethnicity to it. They wanted names that, you know, just for American, you know, American names. Like, so she went over to the Manhattan telephone book. This was not the Bronx telephone book. I still, <laughs> There's a, a pattern here. Book, I probably still read that. <laughs> went to the Manhattan telephone book and said, we got to get you a new name. Meyerowitz is not going to be it. I mean, you know, Meyerowitz is a nice name. It's a good name. It's a did well for my parents, my father. So she went to this book, opened it up and said, I said one thing, and I don't know where I got this from, but I seem to remember that somewhere uh, in the Bible or something, it said, thou must, if you change it, thy name, you must have, <laughs> if you change your name, you must have at least the first initial 
of your name. So I said, it has to be an M. I don't know if I made that up to this day, but I don't know. She got the book, opened it up, went like this to the book, and went, boom. Bruce Morrow was born. Wow. Bruce Morrow. Could have been anything. Well, thank God it was Morrow, and that's uh, stuck with you ever since. <laughs> so your your first radio gig, a lot of people may not know, was actually in the island of Bermuda. For ZVM, you were known as the Hammer, and you brought rock and roll to the little islands of Bermuda. After Bermuda, you were hired as a producer at WINS, and there was an after strike, which left all the on-air personalities off the air. And you step in and you become a DJ on WINS. And, you know, moving forward a little bit, talk about the night that you got your other name. Uh, Bruce Meyerowitz becomes Bruce Morrow, but how does Bruce Morrow become Cousin Bruce? Well, first of all, that very important time when there was that strike. I want everyone to know that I'm just not a strike breaker. In those days, when things like radio stations or television or things like that, that require certain personnel and certain talents went off the air, they would go right to management. At that time, I was a producer. You know, I just want you to know, I was a producer at that time. I used to get the logs together and you know work on shows and help the on-air personality. So they walked out. The union took them out with the technical union, and they had to have the executives, the people, the other people come in, and that's where I got my break. And, of course, I had on-air experience. I was the only one. So they kept calling on me and leaning on me and leaning on me. That's where it really started. My first job, you know, when you start getting ready to graduate, you send out demo records, send out demo tapes in those days, tape little half-inch things on little five-inch reels. And what you do is about two minutes worth of introducing records, reading a minute worth of news, doing a couple of commercials, doing some public service. And what you do is you have to hope that within the first 10 or 15 seconds, you get the ear of the program director that you send these tapes to. Because what you do is you decide where you want to go work and you send these tapes. You make copies and you send the tapes to the program director. He listens to them. If he likes them, he'll call you and offer you a job or ask you to do some more things. I sent out, I think, eight tapes at that time. Six or seven of them came back and told me to go in my father's business. <laughs> relax and not bother with this. But that one tape got me a job. There were two things that happened. I got a job often in Bermuda, ZBM in Bermuda, which I stayed with it for a year, my first real professional experience. And that's a whole story in itself. Yep. That almost was an MGM movie. What happened yep. to me in Bermuda? That was intriguing. It was almost James Bondish. Not quite. Brucey Bond. That's what it was. <laughs> I was offered a job. I was in Miami at the time. I went to Miami after skip around a little bit. And I worked in Miami for a while. And one day I was offered a job at WABC to come back. Well, home. let's go back before that, Brucey. Oh. Um, at WINS is where you got your nickname. Talk about yeah. the night oh, oh, that yeah, right. Bruce yeah. Morrow right. became cousin Bruce. No, it's Bruce. all getting this. This, this career is it's so wild. There's a lot. There's I, a lot. There's an awful lot. Tom, thank you for reminding me. You probably know more about me than I do now. Uh, I was driving home at that time. I lived in Brooklyn, New York. This true story. This really happened. I'm driving home, finished working, and it was Bruce Morrow. Name on the air was Bruce Morrow because I got that from my telephone book. And I was in the middle of a Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, and I knew I needed a shtick. A, a shtick. Cousins, that means handle. You know, you need something <laughs> to say, hey, this is not Bruce Morrow. This is, ah, you know, something that. Remember me the next time you come in. 
And uh, it's going to make you stand out. Something that'll make you stand out. Yeah, something different, like a wrestler, right? So I'm in the middle of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, and a bell hits, bong, right? I had this light go on, and it said, Bruce Cousin Brucey Morrow, because the day before, because this is important, a little old lady was escorted into my studio as I'm queuing up records, queuing them up, queuing the records up for those days, nothing digital. And the, the guard said, may I bring this lady in? She's in trouble. Because, you know, radio stations at night were like a beacon. We're like the lighthouse, right? And people would sort of come to us. And I've had that many times, but not like this. So this little old lady, I looked at her, her eyes were twinkling. And she made contact, boom. Now, you know, being a businessman, that if somebody comes in your room for an interview and they make eye contact with you, they got you. At least they got you to listen a little bit. Very important. That's number one, eye contact. Before speech, eye contact. She made eye contact with me, and there was luck. We made a luck like that. And she said, excuse me, sir, Mr. Morrow, do you believe we're all related? And I looked at her, and she's still looking at me, this little old lady. And I said, yes, I do, ma'am. I really do. And I'm playing my record. I said, excuse me, ma'am. Cue up an Everly Brothers record. I'm playing it. And she said, well, we're all related. So, cousin, can you lend me 50 cents to get home? I'm broke. I can't get home. <laughs> He was so cute, so sweet, and eyes were locked. I gave her the 50 cents. She said to me then, here it is. Thank you, cousin. I'll never forget you. She walked out. That day, going home, I go back to the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. In the tunnel, I heard that little old lady say, thank you, cousin. Thank you, cousin. I'll never forget you. Thank you, cousin, cousin, cousin. Bong. That was it. The next day I went in. I went to the program director and I said, sir, and I'm about 18, 19 years old. They were about some young, no experience and scared stiff. I said, I want to be called Cousin Brucey from now on. He said, what? Scared the hell out of me. Right? I thought he was going to hit me or something. He said, you can't. That is the corniest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. I said, yeah, but there's nothing wrong with corn. I don't know where it came from. The Brooklyn came out. I said, you know, corn is going to your aunt and uncle's house. They get the best food and the best presents and the best gifts. So he looked at me. He says, you serious? I said, yeah. He said, all right, kid, I'll tell you what to do. Kid, you do that tonight. Do it a little bit, but if you overdo it, I'm going to fire you. Well, you don't take a Brooklyn kid who's ready to go and ready to jump and tell him not to do something. I must have said cousin after every third word. It didn't stop. But six in the morning, ring, phone goes. Bruce, this is Mr. Leeds. Get your tush in here. He didn't use the word tush. But get it in here. It's at 6 o'clock. I don't care what it is. I called my father. I was scared stiff. I thought maybe he was going to hit me, tie me up or something. <laughs> he never was fired or anything like that. So my dad, of course, as we said before, was a businessman. He came with me. It's now 7 o'clock. I get into his office. And he says to me, looks at me very sternly, he says, sit down. And he says, Mr. Marlins, please sit over here. Very polite to my father. Says your son disobeyed everything I told him. Says I'm the program director. He was has to be disciplined. So my father said, "Well, what's the problem?" Says I want you to see something. He goes to his desk drawer, opens up the desk drawer, and lifts out hundreds and hundreds and spilling over from his hands yellow envelopes. In those days they were called Western Unions, right? Telegrams spilling over his desk. My father looks on very wisely and says, "Well, 
seems to me that's pretty good. He got a response. My father, <laughs> yes, yes, we got a response. All right. He was told not to do it. However, I'm firing him and I'm going to put him on a seven year contract. <laughs> a little, a little abbreviated, but that's exactly what happened. That's how it happened. So now your cousin, Brucey, you end up after WINS in Miami for a year. And then, you know, a lot of New Yorkers my age know you from the WABC era, which started in 1961 when you got a telegram from WABC, from Rick Sklar, the program director, legendary program director, who said, Brucey, come home. And in 1961, you came home to WABC. That's it. That was a very big break. First of all, I spent the year in Florida, in Miami, and I was on WINC from the broadcasting high above the beautiful Biscayne Bay in Biscayne Terrace Motor Hotel. And we do that. But I used to get audience up there. I always loved an audience. I don't like to be sequestered, you know, isolated in a room. I love an audience. And we used to have dances up there while I was broadcasting, which I still do. I like to do that kind of stuff. And I spent a year there and it was very good. It was very good. Anyway, the WABC came along and offered me a really great deal. And that's where it really started. The Cousin Brucey thing really, really came into fruition. And it was also really the beginnings of AM radio music as a powerhouse. This was a couple of years after the beginning of the rock and roll era, but a couple of years before the Beatles. And you and Dan Ingram and Scott Muni and the other legendary New York DJs were all on this same frequency, 77 WABC, together starting in 1961. And everybody started listening to you. So a couple of years after you started in 1962, a year later, talk about WABC's principle of the year. You're not really sure who's listening. You do this contest. You think you'll get 10,000 ballots. Millions and millions of ballots come in. Everybody is listening. The power of AM radio, by the way, it's kind of funny. That's where I am now. I'm back on WABC. I returned, which we can talk about a little later. Kind of interesting. I made a, a complete circle here. I'm back home. WABC was a very unique radio station. It was 50,000 watts, which cousins, that means very, very powerful. At night when I was on the air, I'd reach over 30 states. So I got a national image because of the, if you remember your earth science, the ionosphere as it gets later, rises, AM radio bounces off the ionosphere, bounces back. And the higher it goes, the bigger the bounce. So by nine o'clock, I'm reaching the world. I'm reaching all over the place, 30 something. This was before satellite radio. Oh, this was an AM before, radio yeah, station. Yeah. There was networks, there was a little syndication, but this was before satellite, before any kind of anybody ever realized what could the potential of what can be happening. So I'm reaching this thing every week, every day, and it's amazing. It was an amazing experience, and I had a good time. I stayed there for 13 years, Peter, and that watched rock and roll develop. Let's talk about WABC and the convergence of Beatlemania in 1963, 1964. What I think is really interesting, there's a famous story that I'd like you to tell about an armed guard delivering, I want to hold your hand with a promo guy handcuffed to an attache case. <laughs> but this was in late 1963 and just a couple of months after the assassination of President Kennedy. And there was, I can only imagine the malaise and the mourning that was going on in the country. And the fact that 
the Beatles and the promise of their music helped bring the country out of this malaise. Talk about playing I Want to Hold Your Hand on W.A. Beatles C. That's right, it became W.A. Beatles C. Well, our world was in deep trouble. Everybody was sad racially, economically, politically, and then, of course, the assassinations. And we needed something to make us smile. The record industry, the American record industry, was in kind of a, a little doldrum. It was sort of flatlined a little bit. It was going along, but we needed something to give us the Tootsie Roll in the middle of the Tootsie Pop. We needed something very, very important. So overseas, something is going on with these four, we call them mop tops, all over Europe, causing all kinds of riots and things like that. And they were really loving American rock and roll. They were emulating Chuck Berry and the Everly Brothers and Jerry Lee Lewis. And they really hadn't started with their own music yet, a little bit, but they were really relying upon American rock and roll, but they gave it a new spin. They gave it a new energy, which is something we were not, we were not giving people. We were lacking this energy at this time in our lives when we needed something different. So here these four guys come over. I start receiving records in the mail. Well, we go to, we used to have record meetings at WABC and we play these records. The program director would bring in you know, the top 20 and we'd play that again. They'd move up in numbers. It was the same thing. Very rare would we enter a new record. They had to be a good excuse because they were afraid with the payola scandal that we went through, which we can talk about. That's another show, uh, the payola scandal. So they were very, very careful, very uptight about what we were playing. I, I mean, I would bring in some new bands from Brooklyn or Queens. I said, these deserve, they, the audience wants to hear this. They deserve a break. We were afraid. They were afraid to do it. So we played a top 20. We'd see it. But then this Beatles thing started overseas. So we started getting these records in. And the actual first feeling was, how dare these upstarts with these strange hairdos and that strange accent emulate Jerry Lee Lewis and the Everly Brothers? What, are they kidding? We don't need that. Oh, boy, did we need it. We needed it more than we knew. Well, little by little, it started creeping in. We started getting some of the old VJ records, the new VJ records and Swan, et cetera. One night, they're ready to come in aboard Pan Am Flight 101, by the way, which is kind of interesting. It was sort of a precursor of what I was going to be doing in the future. Before they came in, the record started coming in. A record came out, well, coming out, we read about, we heard, bootleg copies, I want to hold your hand. But they weren't great copies. So I got a call one day from my record promoter. He says, at 9 o'clock tonight, now my show, as I said, was heard in 30 states. Plus... And it was very popular. I think I remember the ratings, but if anybody's listening to the radio, chances are they, they were listening to the cuz. They were listening to me. They told me at nine o'clock, I'll be allowed to play the, the latest Beatles song, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Now, whoever gets the exclusive, the first place on a record like that, a Beatles record, equals points, equals dollars, commercials. I mean, equals huge amount of listeners because we promoted it all day. Tonight at 9 o'clock, Cousin Brucey will premiere the new Beatles record. Well, we're going to send it up, but you can't play it till 9 o'clock. We're sending up our representatives at 8.45. 8.45 comes. The guard brings them into the door, and there's a, my record promoter who I knew. Attached to a guy next to him, this big, tall security guard, 
carrying an attache case handcuffed to his right arm. What is this, CIA? What am I doing here? This says, Bruce, here's your new record. It's in there. We cannot unlock it. Can't take the handcuff off or open the attache case till 9 o'clock. Now, here's the bit. 9 o'clock comes up. We didn't know what we were getting into. Remember, I'm reaching 30 states. By this time, everybody in the nation is aware that Cousin Brucey on WABC, not WABC yet, WABC, was going to premiere, I want to hold your hand. I mean, that's like presidential election. The results was amazing. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. I play the record. it several times that night i think maybe almost eight times it was so good play it next day we start getting calls it seems that radio stations all over the country re-recorded what i was playing and they had it on the air almost as early as i did 10 minutes later they had that record on the air they had an exclusive also so what did we do peter ask me what'd you do What'd you do, Brucey? I'm glad you asked me that question. That's very smart. <laughs> we went into the studio and I cut something like exclusive, cousin Brucey, exclusive, exclusive on WABC, exclusive, exclusive for the, for the course with, with the echo, 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 echo right? reverb. Right. Yeah. Every 10 to 15 seconds, I want to hold your hand. Exclusive, exclusive. We destroy the music. You <laughs> must have cringed, right? You're a music man. Cringed. But nobody ever was able to copy a record again. And I guess a lot of radio stations did that. But we were the first to do that. We destroyed the record. That was the, <laughs> the battle of the Beatle broadcasters. You want to hear a cute story? Tell you sure. how the Beatles influenced my audience, how they influenced the audience. They had great effect on the way we wore hair, the way we spoke. Everybody all of a sudden became an Anglophile, right? Hello, how we dressed. <laughs> What music we listen to? For example, in point, Little Joey of the Bronx. This is almost a true story, right? But it happens. Almost true story. Phone rings. I pick up the thing. The ring. The light goes on. Taking dedications. So we take people like I do today. Hi, this is cousin Brucey on WABC. Yeah. Oh, hi, uh, Brucey. This is the uh, this is Joey from the, the Grand Concourse in the Bronx. You know the Yankees and everything. My girl and I, Susie. We're listening to you here in the car. We want you to play a song. Would you, would you play that new uh, record by those British guys? You know, I don't know their name. Would you play it? Hey, Brucey, we love you. Thanks so much. We love you in the Bronx. Okay. Ten days later, Peter, dig this. <laughs> and this happened, Peter. This is no baloney. Hello? Hello, is this Sir Brucey? I said, yeah. <laughs> so this is Sir Joey of the Bronxshire. <laughs> Would you mind playing a record, God bless you, for the queen, my princess, the lady, Suzette? Please play that fantastic record by the Fab Four, Sir Paul, Sir John, Sir George, Sir Ringo. I want to hold your hand. Sir Brucey, we love you in Bronxshire. God bless you. God bless the queen. Ta-ta! 
Now, same guy. I'm t- same guy, same guy, same station. People were speaking, they had the British clip accent. It was wild. They affected everything. So what this goes to show you, the Beatles did not only give us the poetry and the music, they changed our sociological and cultural structure. They affected everything we did in life. The Beatles, amazing. Talking about Beatlemania, talk about when the Beatles came to New York City and your program director, Rick Sklar, literally held you out a window holding you up by the seat of your pants so that you could broadcast live. Talk about a real remote. That was almost a very real remote. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they were scheduled to come up 6th Avenue, and we immediately grabbed some rooms at the Warwick Hotel, which is directly across the street from our WABC in that time, WABC by that time, by the way. So the Beatles were scheduled to come to the Warwick Hotel. That was the Warwick Hotel that time. Picture five or 6,000 kids across the street directly from the Warwick, which was the Hilton Hotel, and every the Americas being held back by police horses, real horses, and wooden horses. Downstairs was a huge amount of battalions of police getting ready for this, and the poor Warwick Hotel did not know what they were into. Well, suddenly something happens coming up the wrong way. Now, 54th Street goes east. Yeah, goes eastbound. Coming up westbound is a Bentley. And the audience goes great. The, the people start, they start breaking out. They start, because the boys are coming in this British looking car. Out of the car jumps four mop tops. It was not the Beatles. There was a group, this is great, <laughs> not too many people know the story. There was a group called the Teddy Boys. They decided to take a little bit of advantage of the situation. They decided they'd become the Beatles. Came up the runway street, jumped out of the car. Police grabbed them immediately, brought them to the Warwick <laughs> Hotel. As far as I know, they've never been seen since. They might still be seen. <laughs> well, about a half hour later, it happened. The boys arrived. Picture this now. I'm being held out by the seat of my pants, literally, like you said, held by the seat of my pants, held by my belt, which I could have really had troubles, by Rick Sklar. And I'm holding a microphone. We didn't have wireless, digital equipment. But it was, you know, regular. It was wonderful equipment. And I'm describing the scene. You're not going to believe this. 5,000 people have just broken through the police lines. As you look at the crowd coming at us, it looked like a huge flower opening. The police were knocked out of the way on their horses, the wooden horses, down. And they came across in a wave like uh, a tsunami. It was amazing, amazing. The boys got out of the car and were pushing in fairly fast, but not fast enough, because I saw... In front of the Warwick Hotel, in front of the main the door there, 54th Street, are these huge planters. And they must weigh several hundred pounds. One planter was knocked over by the crowd like it was paper. Nothing, right? Several of the girls got to the guys. Now, in those days, to grab a souvenir of one of the boys, I mean, was worth historic measures. Right? And they would clip hair. They would tear their clothing, grab anything they can that they were holding. It was a disaster. Well, I was up on the eighth floor. I got myself ready. We got in. The boys were in the building. And we were told they're going to come down and talk to me in a couple minutes. And then they caught their breath. The place was mayhem downstairs. We used to carry the crowd singing our jingles. We'd play a jingle. They'd sing it. And they'd sing along with it. Thousands of them having these little wonderful gadgets called the transistor radio. I mean, God, 
what a, a marvelous thing that was, portable radios. They carried them wherever they went. Well, Paul came in with Ringo. And he says, Bruce, hey, Ringo wants to talk to you. Well, something's up. This was an amazing part for my career, a little bit I know. Ringo Starr, on the way out, was grabbed by several girls, young girls. These are all, you know, about 14, 15, 16-year-olds. I said, Ringo, what's the matter? And I'm almost going to quote this because I remember it so vividly. And it's also, by the way, available on track, on video, and, and that audio. I said, Ringo, you don't look too good. He said, well, I don't feel so great. I don't feel very good, Cousin Bruce. When we came out, somebody grabbed me a St. Christopher's medal that my auntie gave me. Almost verbatim, that's what he said to me. I, well, I said, I was so nervous having these guys in the studio. And I knew there was something going on inside of me. I had a story, but I didn't know yet. Stupidly, I said, was it real gold? I want a dumb thing huh. to say. And he says, quote, I only wear real gold, cousin Brucey, like that. Good, he slapped <laughs> me back. We started talking. We got very friendly. And he said, I really want that back. It means a lot to me in my life. And I said, I have an idea. Well, the radio person in me came out. I realized I had an earth-shaking story. And I said, Ringo, see if you go along with this. Anybody listening who found, not a took, found Ringo Starr's St. Christopher's medal, if you return it, I will make arrangements and Ringo will hug and kiss you and be very grateful. And I said, Ringo, is that right? He said, absolutely. He carried on a little bit. I said, you heard me, cousins? I want you to call me immediately. I'm going off the air in a few moments. Let's make arrangements for the return of this. Because I know darn well somebody. They're all listening. Well, sure enough, I get a call from a lady. Her name is Mrs. Cosavera. I believe it was Cosavera. McGowan, I'm sorry. Mrs. McGowan, I'm going to correct me. Mrs. McGowan. Mrs. McGowan was Angie McGowan's mother, 15-year-old kid. I think. said, Brucey, is my daughter in trouble? I said, no, Mrs. McGowan. She, what happened? Oh, well, she found, Ringo said, she grabbed her office. <laughs> found, she found it on the floor. I said, all right, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go with her and a couple of friends, and I want you to go to the Hilton Hotel. There'll be a room, a suite waiting for you. And then I will tell you what to do when you get there. Well, I, I won't give you all the details, but she did that with Angie McGowan and friends. I arranged in the meantime to have Paul and Ringo at the room at the Warwick Hotel at a certain time. Well, the press, of course, was notified. How did they find out? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> baloney. I mean, we knew we had a story. The place was jammed with cameras. You think it was something that was going on today, you know, politically. Ringo comes in with Paul. Angie's there with two of her friends and her mother. I introduce them. Ringo hugs her and kisses her. She gives him back the found St. Christopher's medal. And to this day, Ringo Starr says to me, Brucey, I still have the St. Christopher's medal. Wow. I see him. That is a true story. And I speak to Angie once in a while. She lives, I think, down in Florida. And that had a great effect on her. And it had an effect on Ringo. You know, every day there was something that happened with the Beatles. Right, right. You know, everybody knows about the famous Shea Stadium concert, but maybe not everybody knows that you were one of the people at Shea Stadium who introduced the Beatles with Ed Sullivan that day. Probably one of the turning points in my career was Shea Stadium and the Beatles. We have in New York Con Edison, which is our public utility that supplies electric and who knows what else nowadays, you know. They could have shut down their turbines that day. There were 65,000 plus kids, most of them female, 
at Shea Stadium that day, waiting to be and share space with our, our heroes. There was such a cacophony. There was such an amazing amount of, of people yelling and, and excitement, enthusiasm. You could have turned off, as I said, the turbines. And that electricity from that Shea Stadium audience would have supplied the energy that day. I know it. I still feel it in my body. I have it in my heart. I have it in my cavity of my chest. Anytime I want to conjure up that day, it's still there, the vibrations. I have never in my life experienced anything like it. All right, here we go. The boys are now being uh, brought in by, I think it was an armored car across the infield, and they bring them to the dugout at Chase Stadium. I'm in the dugout. I think Ed Sullivan was behind me somewhere in sort of a corner. He was watching this, not happy. Because it's kind of a very scary thing. The audience at any moment could have exploded. It could have been a disaster. I mean, that's how much energy was flowing from them. But it was positive energy. That's what nobody understood. I got it, but nobody else did. John and Paul come over to me during this crazy time. And uh, John would say, cousin, cousin, is this It's going to be all right? And I mean, while it's outside, it's bonkers. The poor warm-up acts, which I, 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 I felt so bad for. Nobody gave a damn about any of them. I mean, nobody <laughs> cared about them. They were singing and carrying on. All they wanted was the Beatles. And he said, is this going to be all right? And I said, absolutely. Said, and Paul says to me, Brucey, uh, look at this. Listen to this. Look at them. Anything can happen. He's no. I said, very honestly, that's love. You are listening and feeling American love. Right? They just want to be here with you. They want to share space. They want to be in share space. So John says, Coulson, you sure? And I said, believe me, I know this audience. Meanwhile, I had my fingers and back of me crossed. I was scared. To <laughs> I didn't know what the hell was going to happen. It could have been, you know, it could have been disaster. And, uh, but everything worked out. I said, no, out. it's going to be okay. It'd be okay. All right. It's now time. Sullivan is now and I are getting, walking over. This is a great, I love this story. This is my favorite. We're walking over to the, I call it the scaffolding. They built some steps and a little platform for us to introduce the Beatles. We're at a uh, shortstop or something, second base out there. Sullivan and I get up. Sullivan's two steps in front of me, and he looks at me, turns around, he says, there's a mercy. Is this going to be safe? He was not happy. I mean, yeah, this is something nobody ever went through before, including me. And I said, yeah, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Just keep your fingers crossed. He goes another step. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, <laughs> and I, I wanted to get him. There was something about him. I knew he had no idea who the Beatles were. He didn't care. <laughs> you know, he just, it was Ed Sullivan. He got the camera, I guess. And he said, what do you mean? What do we do? And I said, aha, am I going to get him? I said, Ed, get up there. Let's introduce him and pray. He looks at me with his eyes. He had these big pop eyes. Remember, he said, pray? He turns around and walks up the stairs. We got on. I introduced him. He introduced the Beatles. And that day, postscript, nothing really bad happened. I was asked by the NYPD and the Shea Stadium security people to patrol with them. Because I knew I had you know, sort of control over the kids. The kids were behind chicken wire, barricades and everything. And I helped pry their hands off and calm them down. And the kids were great. They, were, they just wanted to be there. And as I told John and Paul, they wanted to share space. Meanwhile, the Beatles are playing. They couldn't hear a thing they were doing. <laughs> couldn't hear a thing. In fact, kind of a funny thing, Peter, I think you'll appreciate. Only about a year or two ago, maybe almost two years ago, I, for the first time, heard that concert 
somebody got me some kind of a bootleg copy and I had that copy of the actual concert. And that was the first time. It sounded pretty good. They couldn't hear a thing. They couldn't hear anything. They did their yeah, yeah, yes. They gave up. <laughs> One of the most famous concerts in rock and roll history. And there you are, Cousin Brucey, right in the middle of it. The Beatles weren't the only artist who were affected by you and affected you. Your theme song that is known from, you know, New Yorkers in the world, worldwide, was written Go, 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 Cousin Brucey by Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons. Go, go, go with Cousin Brucey. Uh, that still ha- it follows me and travels with me today. It's a great song. I play it all the time. There are certain songs that are associated with you, that being one of them. Talk about the significance, because we've talked a lot about radio. We haven't talked about the songs, per se. Talk about the song that every time that you go on the air in a new place, you start with the same song, because it's your good luck charm. Talk about that. I I guess it's maybe superstition. I don't know. But I also happen to love Chuck Berry. And I believe you're referring to Maybelline. And I decided Correct. that my good luck charm, and anytime I go on radio or if somebody talks to me about, you know, on television and wants to mention a music piece and play a little bit, it has to be Maybelline. Because this, for some reason, grabbed me. And I knew, you know, when you play a song for an audience like mine, there is a belief that I have. Familiarity breeds content. Familiarity <laughs> breeds content. And that's what music is all about. I mean, you know, it's repetitive and when you get to know something. But Maybelline, as soon as I heard Maybelline, I knew that this had some magic. This had magic in it. And this is my traveling companion any place I go. So when I get on a stage, like the first time I was on WABC, which I'm my new series on WABC, Maybelline was number one. If I came yep. to you on your pod and you want to talk to me about music, we'd say Maybelline has to be first. Well, we're definitely going to play it. For sure. And another thing that is so identified with you, especially for those of us who grew up in the New York area, is Palisades Park. Talk about Irving Rosenthal for a second and talk about Freddie Boom Boom Cannon. And, you know, we're now recording this in 2021 and you're still doing Palisades Park concerts. Well, Palisades Park, notice when you mentioned Palisades Park, I don't know if people can see that. I had a big, a big grin came to my face. A warmth encompassed my body. Palisades Park was an amazing event for my life that still joins me all the time. It was a time that every Saturday and sometimes Sundays, I would open this little amphitheater to a couple thousand kids. Parents would drop their kids off from me and they'd either drive away or go enjoy the park or something, go into the restaurant, and they would trust me with their kids. So Palisades Park was a place where I introduced almost every major record act of the day. An amazing place. Freddie Boom Boom Cannon eventually, as you know, with Chuck Barris. Chuck Barris wrote a song. The song was Palisades Park. The original title was Amusement Park. Somebody very wisely made it Palisades Park. And it became an iconic song. Let's face it, it, it made its career. 
for that particular song. <laughs> it's amazing. Palisades Park was at a, a wonderful place. You go, you feel safe. The owner's name was Irving Rosenthal. Irving Rosenthal was about five foot one, maybe. Little guy, but he was a giant. He would walk around that park and keep it safe. This little guy came up to these guys. I mean, I used to watch him stay away from this. And if there was a confrontation, he'd break it up in the middle. And all of a sudden, this little guy, because of his, his energy he had, and because he was so tiny, so small, people would look up, what? And they'd say, this little guy is doing that. He has something that we don't know. They'd break up, yep. and everybody would calm down. He and his brother bought the park many years ago from the Skanks. I believe that was MGM years ago. I mean, Palisades Park originated, you can trace it back probably to the 1890s, yep. even more. The shows that you presented at Palisades Park, they were all lip-syncing their hits. The yeah. Bill Haley and the Comets, Frankie Avalon, the Motown Girl Groups. Talk about the day that Tony Bennett was lip-syncing, I <laughs> left my heart in San Francisco, and the record skipped. What'd you do? <laughs> well, first of all, you got to understand, I didn't have any budget. I produced all these shows and emceed them in my leopard skin suits and things like that. That's where the leopard skin started, by the way. I didn't have any money to have a live band. So I used to get all these acts to come back. And in those days, they come on the stage. Lip syncing was not a dirty word. You know, they lip sync with the thing. We'd have these old photographs in a little shed backstage, and we'd play the record, right? But they were old turntables, and which I said, used to have hammers and a claw for a, a needle, you know, for a, a stylus. Well, I, I had everybody. And one day, we had Tony Bennett, and his record, I Lost My Heart. I Left My Heart and lost it in San Francisco, right? <laughs> and he said to me, I, I don't want to live. I can't lip sync. Let me bring a combo. I said, no, no, I can't afford a combo. He'll pay for it. No, just, just lip sync. It'll be fine. The audience knows it. You, you know what to do. And he said, I really am not happy with that. Well, he gets on the stage. Now, this is, you know, a legend, iconic. This is the big one. You don't want to get him bigger than that. I've had some great acts there, but Tony Bennett comes on. And I'm holding up the album, and everybody's all excited. Tony Bennett's there. And he gets on, and he starts singing, I left my heart in San Francisco, Cisco, Cisco, Cisco. <laughs> Damn record started skipping. Well, I don't have to tell you, he was not a happy puppy. He got, the, <laughs> he got it. We made the record, and you hear the record. Huh? It goes. We advanced a little bit, get rid of the aberration on the disc. Because in those days, you know, if you played a record too often, you'd hurt the grooves, especially if you had a bad stylus or a needle. Not so long ago, up at Sirius XM, Tony left me a message. I have a picture of him and I at Palisades Park. That's available somewhere. And on the picture, he said, please, Cousin Brucey, never play a record of mine again. <laughs> he, he, I think he still goes on the other side of the street when he sees me walking. Uh, he was not happy with me that day. That's really funny. So we're running a little tight on time, so we want to fast forward a bit. So after WABC, obviously the late 60s, early 70s, times are changing. You eventually leave WABC in 1974, and then you go to the upstart competitor in middays across the street at WNBC until 1977. But you know, as somebody who grew up in New York, I know that, and I assume that other New Yorkers know that. What I didn't know is that after you left WNBC, you went into business with Bob Sillerman and you bought radio stations. You were a radio station owner to the point where you guys owned 
a ton of radio and stations and some television stations. We own a lot of radio stations and TV stations, some very major ones too. I always wanted to own a radio station and practice when I preach. I still I love programming. I'm I'm a programmer. I love to program and I love to teach young people these skills because I'm afraid it's not there too often. Um, you listen to as I travel or I used to travel before this nightmare of ours started. Yeah. You listen to radio stations and get air checks, and it's not there. The emotion, the heart is not there. So this is what I try to teach. So we bought radio stations. Now, Bob Silliman is an entrepreneurial guy, and he and I bought a ton of radio stations. And we bought an airplane, and we used to fly in the sweat engine airplane or our different places. And each radio station, I would go on the air because we'd sell the time when I went on the air. So we'd land in a grass, usually a grass airstrip behind the shop right or something, right? <laughs> Up north or wherever it was. And I'd go on the air a couple hours, go make a couple meetings, sell some time, get on a plane and go to the next one. And we did this for about seven years. It was fun. I really enjoyed it because I was practicing what I've been preaching all my life. Absolutely. There are not a lot of DJs, performers, announcers who also have been station ownership. You've seen both sides. Obviously, Bob Sillerman continued buying up radio stations and also live promoters. And what a lot of people might not know is that when he sold the whole business that he called SFX to Clear Channel, that eventually became Live Nation, which is the biggest touring company yeah, in the we world. We had a company, Sillerman Morrow Broadcasting. And yep. then it became SFX. I mean, it was the whole thing. I, at one time, knew it was time to get out of the business part of it. I had enough. I wasn't born to be a guy that was able to make deals and handle like that. I couldn't do that. I'm Cousin Brucey, and I wanted to be on the air. So I sold my shares. Got out right. just in time. And that's why I'm you did smiling well. today. Oh, I'm smart. Let right. me tell you. I'm smiling today. <laughs> So after that, you went back on the radio. Joe McCoy called you from WCBS-FM in the early 80s, asked you to come home again to New York Radio. You did that for a long time until 2005. And then in 2005, I remember when you started another new technology with Sirius XM and you joined there in 2005, you were there for over 15 years. It was a big deal when you went there because it was almost like a validation. If Cousin Brucie is backing this new technology, it's got to mean something. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, I knew I was taking a little bit of a chance. I looked at it. I understood it. I believed in it. But deep down, I wasn't that sure. Right? I wanted to make certain. But then when Sirius went on the air, and I was on there for a while, and then they also purchased XM, became Sirius XM, I knew I had it. And then, of course, the audience grew by leaps and bounds. And I just loved the idea of reaching almost the whole world. And worked. my brand of radio, call it a talent, if you will, God gave me some kind of ability to go through, as I told you, microphones and transistors and cameras, and I was able to reach people. And it worked. It worked on right. satellite radio. The only right. thing that happened on satellite radio, and we'll just leave it because this is a story in itself, is that I woke up one day after about 15 years, 13 to 15 years, and I knew that I was missing something. I was very happy there, and they were great to me, and I had a great run. But I was missing what radio was meant to be, the local feel. Sirius doesn't have that. It's a right. network, it's national, it's international, and it's corporate. I call it corporate radio. But I needed 
to know if a traffic light was out. I needed to know <laughs> if there's a blood drive. I needed to know who's going to be at the church tonight. I wanted the local feel. Community. That's what I needed. And what a great way to bookend not only this interview, but also your career, that as of right now, 2021, for the last year, you've been back, you know, homecoming reunion at WABC. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Now, it's where it really started big time, because this is where the music was really born, on a major, major force. This radio here reaches so much, so many. And now today, it's not the same radio station. It became, obviously, a talk radio station. And John Castamides bought the thing. A man bought the radio station. Who used to listen to me. It's kind of interesting. This man, John, and his wife, Margot, on Saturday nights used to call me on the air. Because I love talking to people on the air. As you know, I still do that. I love dedications. To me, that's a major, major part of what I do, talking to people on the air, besides playing the music. So John used to call me all the time. Say, hey, this person, would you play uh, Bill Haley in the comments for my wife, Margot, and myself? No, I didn't know who he was. He was a very nice man, called me every once in a while. One day I get a call and say, Bruce, you know who that guy is? I said, no. He just bought WABC. Bong. <laughs> the lights went on. I said, you're kidding me. He bought WABC. And the man turns out to be a terrific guy. He is a music lover, loves me, loves what I do. Make a quick story. We made a great deal. And I'm back. I'm back to WABC. I'm back home again. And I got my wish, Peter. I'm doing local radio on an international, national scale. That's what I love. Cousin Brucey's Saturday night rock and roll party every Saturday night from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. 46 years later on WABC. (laughs) How great is that? Brucey, this has been an absolute pleasure You literally have been the soundtrack of my life growing up. And like I said to you before, I remember hearing your voice before I remember hearing my parents' voice. So to be able to talk to you today and help tell your story about the power of the medium and the power of the music has been incredible. Thank you so much. Well, I thank you very much. I love love all your questions. I love visiting with you. And I always love seeing how one of my kids who listened to me grew up. You did okay. You look pretty good, and you did good. I'm proud of you, Peter. Proud of you. Thank you, Cousin Brucey. We'll see you soon. W-A-B-C. Thanks a lot to Cousin Brucie for his energetic and enthusiastic storytelling, and of course, for bringing us such great music and entertainment for the greater part of six decades. Rock and roll owes you a huge debt of gratitude. You can stream Brucie's current show, Cousin Brucie's Saturday Night Rock and Roll Party, every Saturday night on WABC Radio from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern. So make sure to catch this living legend in action. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganvard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenau, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. 
All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.